Hey everyone, welcome back to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast sharing stories of heroic figures who altered the course of history. Anthology of Heroes is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Elliot Gates, and today I'll be collaborating with one of my favorite podcasters, Mark Pimenta, host of the sensational Warlords of History podcast. This crossover we did was really a match made in heaven. Mark's show and mine are so similar, I think we've even had some crossover on some of the battles and figures we've talked about. My favorite thing about Warlords of History is Mark's in-depth research. I think he's got a five-parter or something insane on the life of Timurlane, the famous Uzbek conqueror. He's also got some great episodes on lesser-known figures, Vikings, Roman rebels. Like this show, there's a bit of everything. But today we're not here to talk about 14th century conquerors who walked with a limp. Today we're talking about the one and only Leonidas. That's right, the spear-throwing, pit-kicking, pun-cracking king of Sparta. I'll be the first to admit it. It's absolutely criminal on both of our parts that shows like ours with such a bend to last stands and heroic figures, we've somehow missed the most famous last stand of all time. The Battle of Thermopylae was fought all the way back in 480 BC. It was a battle between a few Greek city-states led by King Leonidas of Sparta against the enormous Achaemenid Persian Empire led by the Shah of Shahs himself, Xerxes I. In a dry, dusty gorge in southern Greece, 300 Spartans and a handful of Greek allies would hold back the tide in the name of freedom. It's probably one of the most well-known battles in Western civilization. There's so many movies, TV shows, songs, and artwork that sometimes it's hard to separate fact from fiction. So that's what Mark and I will be trying to do today. Retell the story based on the historical sources that we've dug up. In this first episode, we'll follow the Persian menace creeping closer into Greece and see how different city-states reacted to Xerxes' demand for their submission. But we'll also explore some of the fascinating and bizarre aspects of Spartan society. Those 300 men that stood with Leonidas were the best warriors in all of Greece, and they didn't get that good by chance. From infancy, their world was one of pain and survival. Rigorous exercise, excessive punishments, rubbish food. In Spartan society, it was sink or swim. So that's this episode. And in the next one, which will be out in two weeks, we'll talk about the Battle of Thermopylae itself and the legacy it left behind. So let's sharpen the spears and bring it on. Part one of the story of Leonidas and the Battle of Thermopylae. Hey, Elliot, how are you? Hey, Mark, doing well, doing well, good to, good to collab. Excellent, so now I have to say, just starting off, that ever since we initially talked about joining forces to delve into Leonidas's lifetime, while preparing for our collaboration here, researching and learning about him, Sparta, and the Battle of Thermopylae, I've become enthralled with his story. So I'm extremely excited to be getting into this with you. But first things first, a very serious question I have to ask you. I need to understand exactly how many times you plan to shout out in a quivering rage, this is Sparta. I'll, uh, I've set myself a maximum for two per episode, <laughs> but uh, there's no guarantees, to be honest. It's, uh, it's a bit too tempting. Okay, I'll try to keep <laughs> mine to a minimum as well. So, Yeah, we'll keep ourselves honest. <laughs> No, and it, it's the same for me. I mean, we've got a podcast called Anthology of Heroes and Warlords of History, and yet none of us have talked about this yet. It seems crazy, right? It's 
literally tailor-made. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And the good news is that it looks like we've finally come to our senses, here with Leonidas's story at last. Elliot, perhaps you can lead us in as to when and where it all began. So our story starts today in the year 540 BC. A boy named Leonidas is born into the southern part of uh, Greece in the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And society he grows up in is unique and different, not only from the rest of the world, but also from Greece. It's the society known as Sparta or Lacedaemonia, as they called it. And they were a people known for their straightforwardness, toughness and brutality, uh, their short clipped speech. And more than anything, the way their society was geared, it was, it was centered totally around warfare. It wasn't somewhere where the arts were flourishing. The total progression of every single male was to be a great warrior. And so Leonidas would become a key figure in one of history's greatest battles, particularly famous for the last stand at the Thermopylae Hot Gates, where he would lead 300 Spartans in blocking the advance of the massive Achaemenid Persian Empire. Such an incredible last stand, certainly among the most famous in all history, that continues to inspire and astound people to this day, 2,500 years later, as does the man who commanded the Greek forces at Thermopylae. Mm. Whenever I think about who Leonidas was, the, the king of the Spartans, just his name and lineage, those together conjure up for me this incredible image of who this most famous of warriors was. He's a product of the Agiad royal house, one of the two dynasties that co-ruled over Sparta, and that, according to legend, were descended from Heracles, the greatest of Greek heroes, sired by the king of the Greek pantheon, Zeus. Thus, we have here Leonidas being a product of the gods. And then we have his given name, Leonidas, in Greek meaning the son of a lion, which that alone provides quite the fitting description of what he would have looked like. Underneath his helmet, a mane of long hair, heavily bearded, ferocious, intimidating, and fearsome to behold, accentuated by this gleaming bronze armor that he wore and this blood-red cloak on his back. Now, underneath all of that would have been this well-muscled, robust frame, painstakingly cultivated from essentially birth, every single day since then, training for war. Granted, this being a description... That would have also been fitting for each and every one of the 300 Spartan warriors that he led into the narrow pass of Thermopylae in August 480 BC. Thermopylae, as you mentioned, Elliot, meaning the hot gates, named for the thermal-heated sulfur springs located nearby, but also acting as the main gateway between northern and central Greece, with Mount Kalidromo guarding their left flank and the sea protecting their right. So this brings us to this vision of these few brave men in the prime of their lives, being all that stood in the way of that Persian invasion of Greece, led by the king of kings, Xerxes I. But so much of this is influenced by legend, and the more romanticized or fantastical accounts of this encounter, like those offered by Hollywood. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Elliot, because while these accounts aren't completely off the mark, 
they certainly don't give us the full picture of what was going on here, nor who Leonidas was. No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, sure, we'll touch on the sources later, but the main one is Herodotus, right? Right. And uh, he's great because, you know, as people, as historians say, there was no Herodotus before Herodotus. He brings so much color and life. He really puts flesh on the bones of these characters, but we don't have too much to compare it to. So we don't really know, you know, the, the ins and outs of this man, particularly Leonidas. He's a bit of a mystery, even, even among the Spartans. Exactly. Because when the Battle of Thermopylae was fought, Surprisingly, Leonidas wasn't in the prime of his life. He was much more advanced in mm. his age than I initially understood. He was around 60 years old and and he had only reigned in Sparta as a king for about 10 years. And you've already touched upon this, very little documented of his mm. life prior to assuming the Agia crown in 490. So the Battle of Thermopylae has so many adjoining pieces because in addition to this, aside from what was happening on land, there was also another battle that was occurring approximately 50 kilometers away at the same time, off the coast to the east of Thermopylae, at a place called Artemisium, wherein an Athenian-led naval force, also heavily outnumbered, was facing off against the incoming Persian fleet. And beyond this, going back to the land battle that was happening at Thermopylae. It wasn't just 300 Spartans that Leonidas led there. He also had under his command another roughly 6,700 soldiers from southern and central Greece. People forget about that. Absolutely. And really, it's quite the travesty that they are often forgotten because they were critical to the success of the Greek defense at Thermopylae. And without them, I very much doubt that Leonidas and his 300 would have performed as well as they did, much less the battle lasting three days. And I think a lot of this, it really relates to what you and I initially discussed us trying to do here, which is do our best to separate fact from fiction and using what we can more reliably lean upon to start piecing together his lifetime. This is probably something that we would both strongly agree that far from deflating the inspiration of all his accomplishments in the story, only adds to its distinction. Mm. Mm. There's an interesting idea that could any of these men have done exactly what he did, right? The society was so geared around him. Was, it a, was he an essential cog? If they raised up one of those 300 Spartans to lead the army, would they have got the same results? It's a, you know, they're a product of their environment. When you look at the whole sequence of events, and this will really come to light probably in the second part, when we look at what happened after Thermopylae, especially amongst the 300, understanding that we're actually two survivors. And for, mm. for reasons that were perhaps beyond their control, their legacy is completely different from Leonidas's, yeah. right? Just separated by small degrees as far as what occurred to them. We'll get back to that, I guess, a little later. So one of the things that I think we both came across as we were doing our research is just understanding how many limitations there are in terms of the relevant documentation of Leonidas's early lifetime. But I think a lot of his story, a lot of his early years can be gleaned from understanding Sparta itself, its history, yeah. culture, and societal norms, how it evolved into this exceedingly severe militaristic state. 
and it was truly designed to mold the perfect warriors, mm. ready, if not willing, to sacrifice themselves for their state. And so as we want to try to better understand who Leonidas was and how all of his story came to fruition, I think a good starting point is to kick things mm. off at the very beginning, Sparta's founding and evolution. Yeah, look, I think that's probably, before we can kind of get into the last stand, we need to set the scene a bit, don't we? So by the time Leonidas was born, we said 540 before, Sparta, would you say it was a dominant power? If not, it was climbing to the top of the kind of Greek city-states in terms of a land power, right? Absolutely. It, they mm. were definitely nearing the apex of their power, their hegemony over Greece. But Still a few steps removed from that point. They were mm. certainly the dominant power in the southern Peloponnese. Yeah, yeah. So it was very much Spartan as the land power. And then you've got the emerging state of Athens as the sea power. And what was quite unusual about Athens at that point is democracy, as in you know the basis of what most of our societies are based on, that was quite new to Athens as well. They're famous for the founders of it. It was still kind of getting off the ground. So this kind of helps you set the scene of how different these societies are. You've got Sparta where two kings in charge of a very autocratic society, and then Athens, the founder of democracy. But Sparta hadn't got to the stage it was, you know, dominating the, the lower Peloponnese by doing what everyone else's did. So the society was, as we talked about, geared towards war, but it's kind of dark secret that a lot of people don't really know about and that's kind of glossed over in all the history books and all the Spartan legends, is that they were effectively slave masters of, of an entire race of people. Um, and those slaves were called helots, as in H-E-L-O-T-S. I think there's debate on whether they were ethnically the same as Spartans, but they certainly came from the, the same land. They were a yeah. different city-state that Sparta had effectively conquered in one of its wars. And they effectively subjugated the entire population as slaves. Not quite chattel slaves, but it was still a pretty nasty way of life. Definitely. For the helots, quite the dismal and violent existence one of complete servitude to their Spartan masters. Mm. And it appears that Sparta, founded in the 900s BC along the banks of the Eurotas River, a centralized location inland within the southern Peloponnese, from early on showed themselves to have a rather sharp appetite for expansion and for the enslavement of the people therein, first conquering southwards to the coast, the lands known as Laconia in the early 8th century BC, followed by a push westwards in the mid to late 8th century BC to subjugate Messenia, that had very fertile lands. In fact, by the time Leonidas was born, in the mid-500s BC, Sparta's territorial extent was somewhere in the realm of 8,000 to 8,500 square kilometers by far the largest state in Greece. And just for comparison's sake, the territory that Athens controlled, Attica, was about 2,500 square kilometers. But you're right, because when it comes to the Helots, there's good reason to believe that they may indeed have had a shared ancestry with their Spartan overlords, since the Peloponnese had been settled by a group of people called the Dorians, around 1100 BC. Granted, the Spartans, they saw things, let's say, differently, believing themselves a superior race and state, completely justified in the enslavement of their neighbors. 
and relegating the helots to a life of subservience. The fundamental means, economically and agriculturally, through which Sparta developed into a city-state, a military-obsessed society, so unique and foreign to the rest of the Greek world. Mm. If in your society the highest pursuit is military prowess, and you've got all the luxury time in the world to, to work towards that, then you're going to become pretty good at it. I mean, they, they didn't, men and women, they didn't clean, they didn't cook, they didn't farm. They, all they did was train to, to become better soldiers because the helots took care of everything else. And there were about seven times as many helots in their society as there were Spartans. So, you know, there was always this fear of a slave uprising and, you know, rightfully so. So, I mean, every year they declare war on these, these subjugated people in a kind of ritualistic, quasi-religious war um, in an excuse mm-hmm. to kind of chop off the, the, the ones who were showing any traits of leadership or any, anyone that might look like it might you know, strike back against them. They humiliated them regularly. They forced them to get drunk for their amusement. They whipped them, you know, even when they hadn't done anything wrong, just to kind of show we're still in charge here and it's not going to change. Plutarch tells us that the Spartan males yeah. would just stroll yeah. through the fields and looking for helots that looked a, a little stronger than the others and just kill them. Oh, yeah. I th- they were always on the prowl, essentially, for either anyone, to your point, that was seemingly large in size and might be considered a potential formidable warrior and adversary in the future, or someone who was perhaps speaking a little bit too loudly uh, about mm. uh, trying to create an uprising. So they would go in mm. and essentially clear all those threats out preemptively before they mm. became an active threat. Yeah, and I got—I don't know if you got this too, but I got the feeling they were almost kind of pariahs in the Greek world for doing this. I mean, Greeks had slaves, but they didn't enslave other Greek people. It was almost like a bit of a taboo, right? Absolutely. Partially, I think uh, there was a—I think you could look at this in two ways, right? You had the rest of the Greek world that looked at Sparta, and they saw this complete, unique, strange world, so very different from theirs. But then for the Spartans looking outwards they were completely also xenophobic, right? They, they mm. saw themselves as the preeminent masters of Greece. No one could touch them. And everyone else's structure, their political structure even, uh, to a certain degree, how they lived their lives was completely inferior to what Spartans consider, considered themselves to be. I mean, I guess the summary is that if all your domestic jobs and everything else is being, you know, taken over by someone else, you get you get pretty good at warfare, don't you? And that's how they got to to where they are. But maybe you could tell us a bit about that military focus and how they, you know, what they did with it. So, given everything we talked about in terms of Sparta's conquests and expansion in the southern Peloponnese, I think it's resoundingly clear to note that Sparta, right from its beginnings, had a militaristic leaning and outlook, and they placed a great deal of focus, of course, on emphasizing and and fostering its fighting strength. Though I would also argue that this tendency wasn't really all that unusual or rare among the city-states that arose throughout ancient Greece between the 11th and 8th centuries BC. Mm. So there was lots of reasons associated to this, but the more fundamental being the geography of the Greek peninsula. So you have this terrain that's dominated by the Pindus mountain range, known as the Spine of Greece, resulting in quite small, relatively small pockets of arable land. And this triggered a push for expansion. There was that 
wider Greek colonization of the coastlines around the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, but also fierce competition and frequent wars among the city-states that truly considered themselves to be distinct nations Mm. from one another. Mm. And this was so they could expand their footprints at the expense of their neighbors. People refer to them as colonies, but they weren't really colonies, were they? They weren't dialing back to some capital. They were all quite independent. The only thing they shared was that they were... They were loosely Greek, you know, they spoke a Greek dialect. That's a good point, because while it was a Greek colonization of the wider Mediterranean and Black Sea, you're right mm. in that the use of the term colonies is a little misleading. For example, although Athens was the mother city to many of the Ionian city-states founded across the Aegean along western Anatolia, in essence, once established they would become fully independent city-states in their own right, though generally maintaining good relations, trade links, and kinship ties Mm. to the mother Mm. city. But going back to the Greek mainland, I think one of the things that is really important to note is that when these wars, when these inevitable conflicts due to this meager amount of arable land arose on the Greek mainland, It was the respective citizens of each state involved. It was they who would be called upon to, Mm. you know, don their armor, pick up a spear. But again, it was only as the need called for it. It was never as a standing army. And this is a notion that was equally applicable to Sparta as well. But that's at least until the early 7th century BC. Because this is when a Spartan by the name of Lycurgus, brought to his nation what was effectively a revolution. He was the architect of Sparta's reinvention into an acutely militaristic state. He's a bit of a shadowy figure. He wasn't a king, most likely some type of Spartan elder that was seen to have a link to the gods. Spartans, however, subsequent generations afterwards revered Lycurgus as this semi-divine figure, the lawgiver, who, in accordance with the prophetic guidance he received from the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, instituted something called the Great Retra, which is the constitution that Sparta would reform their society around. So the trigger point for this, the, the implementation of this, was a time of great tribulations for Sparta. This is at the dawning of the 7th century BC, when a massive uprising of the helots took place, the Spartan slave class that you talked about. Mm. So this is one that evolved into a terribly difficult, decades-long conflict, about 40 to 50 years, Yeah, wow. with Sparta experiencing huge setbacks at the initial stages. But then momentum swinging back strongly into their favor only after the implementation of the great Retra and the remaking of Spartan society into this completely military-focused state, thus ending with Sparta's victory in the Second Mycenaean War around 650 BC and the continued domination of the Helots. But it was through this new system that they had in hand. This is what, in their minds, gave them ultimate victory And so I think through this, we can much better understand why Sparta's citizens took so fervently to Lycurgus's reforms. Yeah, yeah. It's not just about being ready to fight the enemy. You've got to be ready to fight 
an underling class in your society that already that have good reasons to want to kill you. Absolutely. Definitely. And this was a constant burning issue. And so this created this seismic shift to Spartan society. And I think it went much further than improving its military strength. The aim was broader than that. In creating a utopia of sorts, <laughs> what the Spartans considered a utopia, not one of individual creativity and expression, but one that was strictly authoritarian and hierarchical. Mm. To that, I would add, most importantly, with the Spartans at the top of the food chain. And this impacted their very psychology, their entire outlook of the world. And so we go back to the central feature of this, and it was Sparta becoming this completely focused military state, endeavoring to develop the best army the world had ever seen, the perfect soldiers also, that were dedicated to mm. the state above all, because they always had this looming threat, this danger of the helots and their revolts and rebellions and uprisings. And that's multiplied by the fact that, as you touched upon, Elliot, that the helots vastly outnumbered the Spartans. Mm. Mm. So one of the things that I pulled when looking at this was some understanding of the demographic. So Around 500 BC, which is Leonidas's era, the population estimate for Sparta being around 30,000 citizens, right. outnumbered by the Helots as much as 7 to 1, some historians even saying as much as 10 to 1. Crazy. So a massive, massive gap mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And what did this do? It made Sparta, let's say, it remade Sparta into this permanently mm -hmm. armed camp. No walls instead protected by a professional standing mm. army. Mm. And what did this army consist of? It was exclusively mm. of its citizens, male Spartans, men that were forbidden to have any other trade or profession other than as mm. warriors, in a constant state of readiness to deal with enemies within and without their domains. And this is topped off by the notion that Absolutely no one among its citizenry, even their kings, were above the Spartan state and its laws. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I want to touch on with something you just said then that maybe might have escaped some listeners, kings, plural, right? Yeah. That was, uh, that was a uniquely Spartan thing as well. So there were two kings ruling at once. Uh, this was definitely peculiar in the Greek world. I mean, they all ran their own ship, but this was, this was quite strange. So you touched on Leonidas's birth, but both kings' families came from two separate lines that supposedly descended back to Hercules. So every subsequent king had to be from one of these two families. I think there's debate on why there was two kings at once. From what I read, one represented the old power that was there before the Spartans kind of conquered and expanded during the Messenian Wars, and the other was the new power, so Sparta and Messenia. So did you, did you find mm -hmm. anything deeper on why they had two kings? So legend has it that the first Spartan king, Aristodemos, mm -hmm. he had twins and it wasn't revealed who was born first. Oh, he didn't okay. want to have to choose between his two sons to only allow one to be selected as king or to become his heir. And so kind of strange, but then because it wasn't revealed who was first, they decided, okay, let's make them both kings and you guys will both co-rule over hmm. Sparta. I think that's certainly more the legend. Um, one of the more probable, or I guess more realistic takes on this is that 
When Sparta came together in the 9th century BC, and this is the result of an amalgamation of villages that created the polis mm, of Sparta, mm. and it was two potential strongmen amongst the villages that then decided to, instead of fighting each other to the death, they decided to co-rule. And Makes sense. And then you just tie the story of Hercules back. Supposedly, <laughs> they both came from a Hercules. Yeah, warrior. everyone <laughs> wants to be descended from a god, right? Doesn't like, hurt. Yeah. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, they weren't, was it like a, you know, a monarchy where they had absolute authority, right? They had a council that helped them govern. Yeah, exactly. The Spartan kings definitely had limited powers. Their main roles primarily being functioning as the commanders-in-chief of the army and as the keepers of the oracles from Delphi, whereas the true governing power of the state resided in the hands of its oligarchy, a small ruling council called the Elders that consisted of 28 men over the age of 60 that were elected for life to the council, which is reflective of this Spartan constitution that was purposely designed to have checks and balances in place to ensure that no one person could obtain nor retain too much power, and that Spartan law always reigned supreme, while also maintaining the strict social hierarchy that kept everything running along smoothly. Which, can you walk us through what this societal structure looked like? Well, the society was a kind of caste system, really. At the top were the Spartiates, full-blooded citizens who got all the privileges a Spartan citizen could hope for. Underneath them were the Periushkoi, yeah. and these were the Spartans who didn't live in the city centre, they lived in the countryside, so they had some privileges, but not as much as the Spartiates. And underneath them were the Helots, the slaves. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this form of government was honed over, over many centuries, particularly in the uh, recent wars, but what I thought was really interesting was it was forbidden to write down laws. So all of this was passed down you know, orally, being a Greek city-state, you usually associate that with quite you know, volumes of classical literature and scribes and stuff like that. Yeah, probably speaks to this larger notion of Sparta. They didn't really document a whole heck of a lot in terms of anything, mm, right? Mm. Literature, philosophy, these were pursuits left to others. Yeah, probably the um, helots. They felt the helots, <laughs> yeah, they, they actually would th consider these things beneath mm. them, adding to that divide between Sparta and the rest of Greece, mm. what made them so outlandish so strange in their behaviors and outlook of the world. On that note of strange, I think my favorite, if I had to pick a favorite part of the Spartan legend, and it's a tough call, obviously, is that yeah. laconic clipped speech. So I think when people watch 300 and they hear Leonidas say, you know, we will fight in the shade and dine in Hades and all this, they assume it's just Hollywood making it up. But they actually spoke in that curt, clipped, almost pithy way where the, the whole point of the conversation was to get the meaning out in as few syllables as possible and maybe insult the person listening at the same time, if you could, if you could manage. <laughs> they were masters at that. Amongst their, their many um, very definitive skills that made them so unique in ancient Greece military, of course, you nailed it with the laconic speech. Mm. So short in delivery, but so deliberate as well mm. at the same time. I was going to ask you, what, what do you think was the purpose behind that? What, 
were they trying to achieve? How did that come to fruition? Do you have any sense of that? I think it just is something that they knew would add to their mystique and something that would make them even more forbiddable. You know, when when someone asks you a question about life or death and you can, you know, say how you feel in one or two words, it makes you seem almost more fearsome as a soldier, doesn't it? Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about as well, in addition to that, is that this just occurred to me, so bear with me if this sounds strange, but (laughs) it could be that maybe there was some military utility to that. Like, I mean, you're in the Mm. midst of a battle or your communications between your various units and it just needs to be short and to the point, but Mm. you need to say what you mean and make it clear. But Sparta was notorious for, especially in diplomatic means, when communicating with others outside Sparta for amazing, simple one-liners that were just... Mm hard to deal with, right? You, you, mm. <laughs> could you imagine the envoys? Uh, we'll have some really good examples of that, I think, later on uh, as we get deeper into the material. But it just you could understand why a story like this works within Hollywood, right? With these amazing mm. one-liners that are just, I think, a, a dream to perhaps writers. Yeah, I'm sure you came across this one, but this is but the story of uh, when a fellow Spartan kind of soldier comes up to Leonidas and, and he says to him, apart from you being king, you're no better than the rest of us. And then Leonidas hits back, but unless I had been better than you, I would not be king. It's just like, oh, you know, just zinger. <laughs> yeah, I know. What do you, how do you respond to that? No, maybe. You <laughs> no, could try. You are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're right. We, we have so many of these coming later, but it's just, it's such a, I've drawled on about it a bit, but it's so key to who they were and how they how they acted upon themselves. And, you know, it's how, I mean, we said the word laconic, but for anyone who doesn't know, laconic actually means, you know, this kind of brief pointed speech. And it came from what the Spartans called themselves, like a demonian. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that is so, so important to the Spartan legend. But, I mean, we haven't got, how have we got this far without talking about how they actually fought, right? So... <laughs> The scene that kind of comes to me when I think about the Spartan fighting is, and I've watched 300 quite recently, so bear with me. (laughs) So, um, you know, the bit where um, Leonidas kind of asks all the Athenians what their jobs are, and, oh, I'm a baker, I'm a a cook, I'm a porter. And then he asks for the Spartans what their role is, and they all just like roar back at him. And what that scene accurately gets to is the key distinction in terms of what made Sparta's hoplites or soldiers so unique and dominant in Greece. Now, like in Sparta, it was the norm for the citizens of the many city-states to fill the ranks of their own armies. Mm. However, what separated them from Sparta was that soldiering was not a full-time or Mm. year-round vocation for them, meaning that they didn't really receive much more than basic military training. And they only served in the army and in campaigns sporadically Mm -hmm. as the need arose. Whereas training for war, drilling and military maneuvers and formations, that's what the Spartans did. Mm. Full stop, day in, day out. And as a result, it honed them into not only exceptional warriors in their own right, but made them into almost invincible when Mm. operating as a part of a phalanx Mm. and they could execute elaborate formations and maneuvers. And this isn't a complexity that was far beyond the ability of their counterparts throughout Greece. Yeah. Yeah. If you've been training with someone most of your life, there's a lot of trust that can be built that 
you're not going to have for the for a person you've been conscripted next to the day before, you know, for a campaign before you go back to your family and your farm. Definitely. I couldn't agree more there. And adding to their fearsome reputation, what had also been weaved into their mindset of these Spartan warriors through their society upbringing and training best displayed in battle in view of their comrades to their sides and their enemies in front of them was their almost enthusiastic willingness to pay the ultimate price laying down their lives if it benefited the Spartan state. Alluding to the Spartan notion of a beautiful death, an unwavering sense of duty to fight for and serve the state no matter what, even when the situation and odds were terribly stacked against them. You know, it was so indicative of people who death was not something they feared. It was something they kind of marched towards. It was the ultimate kind of pursuit for being this, you know, this soldier. You know, they fought as a unit, not individuals. So um, a usual Spartan warrior wore a a fully, a full face bronze helmet. You know, the the ones where you see with the the nose plate that goes around the eye holes. Yes, yeah. Um, A horsehair crest running from uh, front to back. I think there's some speculation that Leonidas, as a as a king, would have uh, worn one that went ear to ear instead, yeah, yeah. to distinguish him in battle. It, you know, it's a heavy helmet, good protection, but it also means you can't see much through your peripheral vision. So it's going to be quite important that you trust the man, you know, to your right and left. Over their body, they wore. It wasn't like 300. They did wore like a a bronze breastplate, usually with greaves protecting their ankles. But uh, interestingly enough, no footgear whatsoever. So they were taught to just you know deal with you know, the stones and the gravel, and their feet would be, I imagine, quite leathery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From early on, as soon as they were children, as soon as their military training was initiated, it was all barefoot. Mm. Believed that someone could maneuver themselves much quicker, run faster, maneuver themselves in battle, pivot mm. in the midst of battle, stay within their unit, remain tightly intact as a phalanx. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you've got like a sandal or something that's falling all over the place, you're not going to be able to, you know, turn as quickly. I thought it was interesting the the you know the very iconic red cloaks that I assume had been invented for Hollywood. They did actually wear those, but during battle they kind of they took them off. So you can imagine these people swaggering onto a battlefield. You've got these enormously muscled men, you know, breastplates uh, decked out with a red cape. I mean, it's going to be quite a sight, isn't it? Certainly intimidating. One of the other things I remember reading about as well was one of the other crucial pieces to their equipment, their massive circular shields, almost one meter in diameter, constructed from hardwood with a bronze plating facing outwards, called the aspis. Also referred to as the hoplon, the name from which we get to the convention of referring to ancient Greek infantry as hoplites. And while variations of this shield type were common to the citizen-based heavy infantry troops found throughout ancient Greece, the Spartans were notorious for burnishing or polishing their shields to such a degree that when presenting as a unified front in a phalanx formation, their shield wall would reflect the sunlight. Really? Not only adding to their intimidating sight, among all those other attributes that you already mentioned, But as they neared the opposing line, the reflected sunlight was said to have hampered the vision of their adversaries, trying to blind 
whoever had the unfortunate circumstance of having to face these guys in battle. You know, what you've hit the nail on the head there, warfare was, is so much more than just stabbing and fighting. It's a psychological element. If you see people that enter the battlefield looking like this and got your grandfather's hand-me-down spear and, a, and an old... I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode... We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. The jerk and you're not going to feel good, are you? Yeah, absolutely. But I thought it, weapons was quite an interesting one as well. Um, obviously, they had a very they had the classic kind of short sword. It was also short. It was almost a dagger, right? Like a dirk. Mm -hmm. But the main uh, weapon they fought with was a very long spear. The spear had an iron point, and I think it's like a brass butt on it, so yeah. just behind the point. Mm -hmm. If you ever see in movies or you know, in all the statues of Leonidas or the Spartans, there's an inverted V, which in the Greek alphabet is the the first letter of L for you know Lacedaemonia. To lose that shield, especially, was to be seen, you know, as as incredibly shameful. Mothers would routinely tell their sons, "Come back bearing your shield or on it." In other words, yeah. die or don't lose it. Exactly. But maybe you could tell us a bit about what daily life was like. I suppose for the Spartans, just when they weren't at war. Everything that you broke down for us, Elliot, in terms of the Spartan political system, the role of its monarchs, laconic speech. I think this presents for us a great opportunity to dig deeper into Spartan culture, mm. to get a better sense of the environment into which Leonidas was born. And that would ultimately shape his sense of purpose and outlook of the world. We previously established how central the military was to Sparta to safeguard that utopia they had built. So what exactly did this look like from a cultural perspective? Well, in short, it was one wherein all its inhabitants and citizens were expected 
no, more accurately demanded to place the needs and interests of the state before mm. that of the individual. So they celebrated personal austerity, frugality, and the shunning of luxury, while glory and honors would be heaped upon its people that exemplified self-sacrifice, mm. mm. those who followed their duty to the letter of the law. So this is both attributed to the men and women who showed themselves willing to pay even the ultimate price for the greater good of the community. And this is a community that was unbendingly rigid in its ideals and configuration, meaning that conformity and strict adherence to hierarchy were the hallmarks of the society. So Elliot, you already had mentioned how little they produced in the way of art, philosophy, architecture. And this is another feature which separates them so much from the rest of the Greek world, because unlike their most powerful counterparts elsewhere in Greece, Sparta was bare of any ostentatious, noteworthy mm. buildings. They just built as practicality demanded. And then taking this notion a little bit further to things like poetry. There's a little bit of a more of an allowance for it in Sparta, but it was only as it related to their values and militant way of life. Propaganda almost, isn't it? Oh, that's a great way of saying it. Yes, mm. propaganda. I mean, one of the most celebrated Spartan poets is this guy by the name of Tyrtaeus. And he was in around the mid-7th century BC, just at the time that they were implementing, or maybe just mm. shortly afterwards, they implemented this system. And so his poetry embodies propaganda. I think you said that perfectly to such an amazing degree. I have an example of one of his works. He writes it as follows. Come now, Spartans, abounding in good men, thrust the shield into your left hand, brandishing your spear boldly with your right, not sparing for your lives, for that is not the Spartan custom. Mm. It's like something out of North Korea today, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything that was allowed for had to be in service to the military mm. and to the state. So music, music was another exception. It was highly regarded, but not for the enjoyment of listening. It had practical purposes. In battle, it would help to guide the Spartan phalanxes as they mm. advanced, keeping everyone in step, but also used for dancing as a form of exercise. However, one of the most important being for religious festivals honoring the gods. And speaking of that, the Spartans were indeed a deeply religious people, possessing a particular affinity and devotion to the god Apollo, who was mm -hmm. the, the prophetic deity of the oracle at Delphi. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the god that had brought them through Lycurgus, the great Retra the system that had enabled them to emerge as the dominant state in Southern Greece. And so they were constantly seeking to gain his favor and renew that favor to keep things that way, to keep them at the top of the heap, keep them mm. dominant. And so the Spartans became notorious for needing to consult the oracle before making any decision at all, mm. whether to declare war upon someone else sign off on peace deals and alliances, and internal matters as well. So much that this drove Herodotus to write that in Sparta, divine matters took precedence over human ones. Mm. And so 
this was so important to Sparta that during times of their more important religious festivals, one of the more important of these being called the Carnea, held annually every August in honor of Apollo to keep him appeased. So great was their fear of offending the gods that although they were never ones to shy away from a fight, the Spartans would abjectly refuse to go to war if it conflicted with the timing of the Carnea. Mm, saying something, isn't it? Definitely. This complete devotion and utter adherence to law, religion, whatever the state says mm. and dictates as necessary. Something that everyone has this responsibility to follow and, mm. and champion as well. Yeah, and uphold, really. Yes, and there's this distinction that we need to make here, I think, as well, because yes, all the inhabitants, all the citizens, but perhaps it might be beneficial to provide a distinction of what citizenship was. And mm. so in Sparta, citizenship was only granted to males that had been brought up in this brutally harsh 23-year-long system of training and education called the agoge, which we'll expand a little later on what this looked like. But beyond this, there were other really steep prices to pay in order to maintain one's citizenship, including the requirement for men from 20 up until the age of 60 to participate in the army, no exceptions, and also provide monthly contributions of, of food, barley, wine, fruit from their estates that was worked by the helots, the Spartan slaves. All these contributions were going to this communal evening mess meal to keep all the Spartan soldiers, their entire army fed. Mm -hmm. And this is something that every Spartan citizen was expected to attend. Again, with no exceptions, even Spartan kings required to take their meals there. Now, one of the Spartan specialty dishes, this was, sounds quite good, a notorious <laughs> black soup um, this partially clotted amalgamation made from pig's blood, vinegar, oh. and salt. Sounds good, yeah. eh? Yeah, that gets, serve me up a bowl of that. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably comes to no surprise, or maybe it is a surprise to us, that Spartan cuisine was disdained by outsiders as mm. horribly bland, lacking, and some dishes like that black soup as outright unpalatable. And I think to highlight this a little bit better, there's this famous story rather amusing uh, anecdote of a foreigner from Sabaris, one of the Greek colonies in southern Italy. And he once joined the Spartans at their public mess upon visiting them. And upon returning to his homeland, when asked, how was it? He dryly responded, now I know why the Spartans do not fear death. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> good. Although I guess this brings us to another point, uh, foreign visitors to Sparta, and this was a rare enough occurrence being that the Spartans were generally none too welcoming of visitors, wary mm. of any outside influences corrupting their utopia. At the same time, kind of highlighted their sharp sense of xenophobia, believing themselves and their system vastly superior to all other Greeks. Mm. And this was so unique in the Greek world where effectively all their resources and efforts were collectively poured into the army, utterly obsessed with the notion of military dominance. Quintessential to this was manufacturing, and I use that word purposefully, manufacturing the best soldiers to fill its ranks. Mm. Mm. 
Within this, Spartan women playing an important role in this pursuit. Elliot, what are your thoughts on how Spartan women were expected to contribute to the state? I would say like Spartan men, it was different to the rest of Greece, right? With no domestic duties to do that would usually occupy their time, they were more or less expected to be in very good shape to birth you know, strong Spartan men and as many as they could. You're right. Like, I mean, women, the women of Sparta, it was interesting because they were out exercising. It's so different from the rest of the Greek world. In the rest of the Greek world, women were kept indoors, out of sight, quiet. Spartan mm. women are, you know, all over the place in Sparta. They're property owners and exercising yeah, and all this stuff. Right. But, you know, as you mentioned, their primary role was to give birth to future Spartan warriors. And so what did this look like? It was quite interesting. It can, I think, accurately be described as a Spartan eugenics program. And this was aiming to cultivate a population that was free of any physical or mental defects, Mm. since they couldn't really serve in the army nor contribute to the state in any meaningful capacity. What this meant for newborn babies was that immediately upon entering the world, they were inspected by the Spartan elders for physical defects, including immersing them in unmixed wine to test their reactions, and not sure how, but somehow providing insights into their mental status. And then while horrific for us to contemplate, those deemed not meeting the standard cast off a cliff, eliminating any potential drains to the state. Brutally harsh and uncompromising fitting perfectly the description of the world that Leonidas was born into in 540 BC. So Leonidas is born into the Agiad family, which is one of the two sort of royal houses of Sparta. And his father was a guy named Anaxandridas, or King Anaxandridas II. And Leonidas was, I believe, the third of his four sons. So it's already looking like he wasn't going to end up as king. Like most societies, in Sparta, the firstborn usually inherited the role. Yeah. So this is important because... This meant that he went through this this Spartan training program we're talking about, the Agoji. So as you've touched on, it was it was a an affair that went for you know twenty plus years, effectively a training program and indoctrination program to make Spartan men out of boys. You went in when you were about seven, and you left when you were what thirty or something like that. Yeah, you're one hundred percent right. That's twenty three years of yeah. constant training, and yeah, what what an amazing thing, like. Could you could you imagine being this child in ancient... So, for example, you're Leonidas. If you hadn't been earlier thrown off a cliff and if you've somehow managed to survive through that shockingly high infant mortality mm. rates of antiquity to reach the age of seven, this is what awaited you now. This was what your prize was upon reaching seven. <laughs> Holy. I think I would have just preferred to be chucked off the cliff to be honest after knowing what's coming. But... Um... <laughs> Maybe you could tell us a bit about the program itself. Well, you know, what was its purpose? How, how did it come about? So let's first start off with a lot of what historians call this. And it seems to be regarded as the world's first state-run training and educational institution. And mm. the word agoge or agogi, the word agoge meant raising, as in the raising of livestock. Mm. And okay, this sounds on the surface quite fitting for a militaristic-centric state such as Sparta, but 
I have to add that it's exceedingly hard to conceive and comprehend just exactly how terrifying the agoge must have been to go through. Mm. Because seemingly and purposely, if one could survive this prolonged ordeal, entering into battle later on as an adult was almost by comparison a far less fear-invoking and daunting event. Mm. So you had all seven-year-old Spartan boys with the exception of the immediate heirs to the two Spartan thrones required to matriculate, which meant that, as you alluded to, Leonidas, because he was what, the third, but he was the third born? Third of four, yeah. I think we can very reasonably assume, I would go as far as to say undoubtedly, he would have been subjected to the agoge. Mm. Because again, this was a place that would allow for no exceptions. Yeah. So unless you were the immediate heir, you would have had to do it. Mm. So what did this look like? It was, I think, Elliot, you'll take us through more of the details, but from what I had gathered, this is like a 23-year mind-blowing gauntlet of mm. strenuous training while regularly being hit and whipped to shreds by other mm. Spartans. Mm. So I think the aim, the ultimate aim here was shaping and hardening the minds and bodies of these boys for war. Mm. Removing one's individuality while mm. pushing him to almost inhuman extremes of endurance, discipline, tolerance for pain, and overall discomfort, as if reforged into iron. Mm. Unrelenting punishment and delivered under this constant supervision of the elders, and they were brandishing whips and batons, ready to dish out stinging blows for just about any infringement, including strict limits on speech, which probably fostered what you had talked about, Elliot, earlier in terms of the laconic speech, but all of which was designed to turn Spartan boys into warriors, brothers in arms, as a part of a fighting force that was unrivaled in Greece, men willing to give up their lives if it was of benefit to the state. Yeah, it's almost like a two-decade-long hazing process, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the kids start this at seven years old, and they're known as Paides. Seven years old. I mean, it's crazy, right? I don't know about you, but I don't think I could tie my shoes at seven <laughs> years old. <laughs> but yeah, as Paides, they compete in these athletic events, you know, running, wrestling, dancing, stuff like that. Um, they deliberately provided meals, nourishment that is not enough for, for their growing body. So they're encouraged but not told to to effectively steal and if they're caught stealing so these huge punishments like you were talking mm -hmm. about you know whippings and beatings but if they got away with it you know that that was all well and good because the skills that you would learn when you're stealing food or kind of hiding stuff away is you know how to be stealthy and how to be nimble all things that would be quite useful in combat so there was i, I read this one story it's probably apocryphal but it said that this this kid's you know stealing. I think he grabs like a, a fox or something to bring yeah. back. He's yeah. caught red-handed, um, and he kind of stuffs this fox like down his tunic. And while he's being questioned about it, this fox is like wriggling around like in his tunic, and it starts like biting him. And rather than like be like, okay, you know, I, I give up, he just let he just stands there like well, Spartan, and just gets eaten by this thing till he eventually just drops dead from blood loss. Incredible. So, it's probably one of those stories that's made up, but it just show, goes to show you the lengths that you know the ki these kids really did go to for this. So when you got to your early teens, maybe 12, 13, then it was time to relearn effectively how to speak. 
and you know speak like a Spartan. You're not talking to your your mum and your sister anymore. You are talking to Spartan warriors. So, as we mentioned, it was these pithy, curt, short speeches that they you know they spoke in, and you would learn to do that too. Every syllable was meant to have meaning, and the less words used to illustrate a particular point, you know, the better it was. Once they learned to to speak like this, they were encouraged to tease and mock other Spartan boys in a way of kind of, I suppose, like steeling yourself against, you know, verbal insults, having the worst things said to you so it doesn't really matter what anyone says. And at around, here's a controversial bit, obviously, at around 12 or 13 years old, they were probably paired up with another older Spartan male for a, as a junior partner in a sexual relationship. So I read yes and no about this. I don't know what you came across, but it seems to me like this probably did happen. There does seem to be quite a divide in terms of this. I, I would agree it sounds like a possibility. So out of the four sources that I came across, more of the ancient sources, there's Plato and Aristophanes who believed, from what I understand, that this was indeed the case in order to foster these loving bonds between the warriors willing to put their lives on the line for one another, no matter mm. what, which mm. is quite possible. But then you have others like Xenophon and Plutarch, who state that this was more of a non-sexual arrangement in its nature, arguing that perhaps others were alluding to this because it undermined and poke fun at the masculinity of Spartan warriors and the mm. Spartan system that was so different from the rest of the Greek world. I think Herodotus, I think it was Herodotus, one of the sources wrote that the Spartans were, quote, addicted to buggery. That was the <laughs> words that they used. So, I mean, that tells you uh, what he really thought of that. But whether or not there was a sexual relationship to it, they were certainly paired up in a mentor kind of capacity. Yeah. Once they were 14, they were no longer Paides. They moved on to being Pideskoi. So once they hit 14, they were beginning the you know official training to become a hoplite. That's where they were given real weapons and they started drilling themselves into Spartan Spartan styles of um, you know fighting and different disciplines and stuff like that. When they hit 20, they become hebontes. By this point, they should really know the basics of combat and drilling. So now they focus on the more advanced things, mm -hmm. maneuvering techniques and fighting as a unit. Um, a single weak link is going to you know, mean the death of po one, possibly multiple men. So it's key that every single person knows what they're doing. And these are all people that is what I forget about. These people have now known the, probably the person standing next to them from the time they were you know, seven years old or something. They've gone through all of this. It's crazy. You're right. And then I think at 20, 20 is when they would become citizens, mm -hmm. right? And they were allowed to start participating in the Spartan army, if yeah. necessary. I think they they were still more on the raw recruitish side. The one thing I wanted to touch on as well is like how there was different physical characteristics that would mark them as they reach their different stages of mm. development within this agoge system. So at seven, boys, they're, they would have their head shorn, That's shaved right. off, mm. and okay, there you go. You're in, you're in the system. And then at 20, they would be allowed to start growing out their hair. According to Plutarch, the reason why is because Spartan men wore their hair long, reputedly to make handsome men more handsome and ugly men more frightening. <laughs> so, you know, it was all, again, purposeful to military matters. Mm. But then it wasn't until later. So, you know, you're 20 years old. You're becoming this warrior. You're allowed to grow out your hair. This must have been something iconic that everyone was looking to achieve because yeah. it would mark you with esteem versus others. And then later on, when you hit 30, 
once you finish going through everything, then you're allowed to grow your beard out and your mustache out. Mm. And then that, thus you get to that kind of description that I was mentioning to right at the onset, you know, long hair, big beards and mustaches. It was all intended to make them either more fearsome or I guess more handsome. Yeah, it's. I guess it's something that identifies someone. Even if you're walking down the street and you're passing someone, you can immediately see, you know, their they're almost their rank in society rather than just guessing their age. Yeah. When when they do hit kind of their their late twenties, they were given the right to vote, and the most promising of them was selected for almost like different elite roles. One that grabbed my attention was called the Cryptea, which was a kind of secret police that kept the helots down was making sure that none of them stepped out of line. Once again, we can see just how much is geared on these people being kept down, right? The whole society is just circled around to make sure these people do not ever rise up. From your understanding, what was the purpose of those that entered into the Cryptea? Like, so they were kind of like a secret police. What exactly did they do? I think it's they tried to kind of infiltrate the rings that other, I suppose, helots or maybe sympathizers were in. And they tried to just get close to them to make sure they found out any plots that were being hatched or any suspected uprisings, people who were huh. maybe being a bit wow. disobedient or, you know, a bit bit cheeky. But once again, these are the people who can't, you know, top of the class, they, they come out at that level. Cool. But once they hit 30, that's generally the time when they're allowed to um, allowed to marry. As you mentioned, they get allotted a farm. So <laughs> they don't get given a farm and told to, you know, get started hoeing the, hoeing the fields. They get given mm-hmm. a whole bunch of helots to do it for them. Yeah. That's an overview of the Agogi system, but we obviously mentioned Leonidas was going through it, but what had been happening with Sparta during that time period? This is a perfect segue, I think, into now we're bringing this more into Leonidas's era. Mm. Earlier, we established what the culture of the environment into which he was born and raised, but what was happening around 533 to about 510 BC while he was going through the trials and tribulations of the Agogi? There was a lot that was changing with Sparta at this time, because this is a period when Sparta became much more active in terms of interacting with the wider world Mm. outside the southern Peloponnese. And they were ambitiously looking to grow Spartan domination and influence beyond that boundary, a goal that would have impacted Leonidas's perspective and ambitions that would have been so tightly wound to the needs of the state. It's quite well documented, as we touched upon earlier, that up until about the mid-6th century BC, Sparta was quite isolationist, Mm. uh, relatively content within their utopia that was closed off to the world, and not really bothering too much with the politics of others. Aside, of course, from involving themselves in wars with their more immediate neighbors, notably the Arcadians just to the north of Sparta, and the polis of Argos to the northeast, who was their Mm. principal arch rival in the Peloponnese. Yep. And so while the Spartans, being that they possessed the finest land army in all of Greece, almost always emerged victorious in pitch battles against these adversaries, taking their cities and lands, the thing is, is that once the main Spartan army departed, the newly dominated cities and territories would inevitably rebel or be retaken, meaning the Spartan army would just be called upon to make incursions again and again. And even more dangerous is that these campaigns left them vulnerable at home, since the helots of Sparta were 
always on the lookout for an opportunity to free themselves mm. from their servitude of their Spartan masters. So this is quite the conundrum, right? You have yeah. the Spartans wanting to expand, but also tethered to their homeland, not daring to venture too far in fear of their slaves that outnumbered them as much as seven to one, or according to some others, 10 to one. So what to do? The solution to this complex problem arriving in the form of the Peloponnesian League. And this is the Spartan policy to gain wider dominance throughout the entire Peloponnese through diplomatic efforts, wherein they proposed a Spartan-led confederation and military alliance of all the states therein. And this is established around 550 BC during the reign of Anaxandridas II, Leonidas's father. And Given the Spartan penchant for, you know, psychological coercion and trickery, it was founded through very subversive methods, something modern historians call the Bones policy. What did this look like? It was Sparta around this time scouring southern Greece and appropriating notably large bones and skeletal remains. They were said to belong to mythological heroes worshipped in the Peloponnese. And then presenting them as being discovered in Sparta. Hmm. Now, most likely dinosaur bones, but apparently convincingly argued by the Spartans to be the remains of the mythical ruler, King Agamemnon and his successors. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that had founded the Mycenaean civilization in the Peloponnese some 1,200 years in the past. But what this did is it presented Sparta as the hereditary and thus the only natural choice to act as the leader of the Peloponnesian League. Mm, mm. Convenient. Super convenient. These guys were, I mean, they were so smart in terms of how they approached these types of things, not just in terms of sheer warfare, but um, doing all the little things in addition to that to gain every single type of edge mm, diplomatically. Mm. I mean, this is a masterclass in terms of how they treated it. Yeah. And so you had all these, with the exception of Argos, who was their arch rival that never joined, Mm. the vast majority of the city-states in the Peloponnese did, all validating Sparta's leadership as the hegemon of the league, in part due to the Bones policy, but also due to their widely recognized and feared military strength. And one of the principal requirements for joining being to promise to help Sparta in case Helot rebellions arose. This solved that nagging issue and threat when the main Spartan army was abroad on campaign. Mm. But there were benefits for the city-states that did join in, significant tangible benefits for doing so, including, one, that they no longer had to fear war against Sparta, furthered by the huge benefit of having the Spartan phalanxes on their side in the event that they became involved in the conflict. So huge benefit there. But the second, also quite important, was... Since the governing bodies that ruled these states were, for the most part, similar insofar as being oligarchies, a political form acceptable under Spartan law, the oligarchs that ruled most of the League members could now rely on Sparta to retain their status. Mm. Mm. And this is such an important point because this aligns strongly with Spartan ideals. And when Cleomenes I Leonidas's eldest brother assumed the Agiad throne in 524 BC. He ended up driving what was to become one of the more one of the more important mandates of the league, 
which was to spread this type of political structure by force, if necessary, mm. among other Greek states outside of their league. Now, this is in part because they wanted to install governments friendly to Spartan interests, but also because Sparta was steadfastly opposed to other political forms. So against tyrants, the rule of the individual, but also pure democracies, which were both, these structures were both seen as threats standing in defiance to the Spartan constitution. Mm. And just to highlight that last point a little better, Cleomenes, between 512 and 506 BC, just as Leonidas was finishing up his time at the Agoge, Cleomenes led no less than four military interventions into Athens in order to remove tyrants from power. But interestingly, and probably to his disgruntled irritation, these interventions only ended up leading to the creation of a democracy at Athens that Cleomenes probably also intended to squash, but was subsequently forced to turn the attention of the Spartans closer to home due to a war that broke out with Argos, their primary nemesis in the Peloponnese. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. All right, so you touched on just before, Mark, obviously, the United had completed the Agogi, but in regards to what was happening outside of the Greek mainland, not just Sparta, but outside the Greek colonies, there was kind of this looming threat on the horizon, right? Um, and Sparta was going through some some growing pains of its own. So there was a serious shift in power. You know, you mentioned before Sparta's rival Argos. Well, in 494, the Spartan army crushed Argos in a particularly quite a nasty battle. It effectively neutered them from the political stage for a very, very long time after. The army itself was led by the current king of Sparta, Cleomenes I, which was uh, Leonidas's older brother. By the time this battle took place, this is the battle essentially for Argos, Leonidas would have finished the Agogi. So it's not out of the realms of possibility to believe he might have been involved in this battle. There's nothing saying he was, but you know the timelines line up. I'll come in here too. Uh, my tendency is to believe that he would have undoubtedly been involved in at least some of the things that Sparta had been doing. The reason I say this is because Sparta had been involved in so many things, a number of interventions in fighting in Athens as well mm. to try to install a friendly oligarchy there. 
but you're right that that war with the Battle of Argo. So they had been involved in a number of wars and altercations that aligns with when Leonidas would have completed the Agoge Bai. He would have been available for active service probably as early as 520 BC when he was around 20 years old. Mm, mm. And it's for these reasons that I think he would have had to have been, I think, an accomplished warrior, mm. seasoned and respected by the time he became king in 490. Otherwise, I tend to very much doubt that he would have been called upon to lead the 300 Spartans yeah. at Thermopylae, much less lead the Greek coalition force. Mm. No, exactly. Yeah, that experience must have come from somewhere, right? He didn't just walk into that one, you know, without having anything behind him. Right. But um, Cleomenes seemed to be that kind of guy, as we'll see soon. Just like presidents have their own kind of flavor of presidency now, he, he really injected himself into foreign affairs quite a bit. And spoiler alert, it's going to get him in trouble pretty soon. But if Leonidas had been at this battle, he would have seen a particularly gruesome end for Argos. Virtually half its male population was slaughtered. Wow. But the victory had made Sparta the uncontested power of the Peloponnese. They were already in front, but this really just like brought the point home. And when he comes home, he overthrows this other Spartan king, a guy named Demaritus. Demaritus is going to be a very key uh, player for our story. So if you're struggling with all these Greek names, this is one to remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting because this is almost foreshadowing what's to come. So off Sparta is this little island of the Peloponnese that had effectively acknowledged the Persian king Xerxes, so a name we all know well, don't we, yeah, um, yeah. As, as their kind of overlord. And this trend was kind of creeping towards Greece over from effectively Persia. Xerxes or his father or his grandfather has conquered quite far to, to the west, and the new battleground is slowly edging towards Greece. Lots of different city-states, some side with uh, Persia, some go neutral. And this island off Sparta gives Xerxes' ambassadors the token of submission, which is earth and water. Now, Cleomenes is already siding against Xerxes in, in this upcoming battle. And the other king, the other Spartan king, Demaritus, is a bit more hands-off. He says, okay, well, you know, let, let's, let's let him have his own battles. Let's let him forge his own destiny here. And this kind of turns into a bit of a, it creates a bit of friction between these two kings where Cleomenes is much more interventionalist. He wants to get involved in these things. And um, Demaritus, whether or not he was an ally of Xerxes, whether or not he was on the fence, it's all it's all a bit up in the air. But he certainly wasn't going to you know start a war over this. Cleomenes wanted this ruler um, of this island gone, and Demaritus wanted him to stick around. So, in the end, Cleomenes gets his way, and this paves the way for Demaritus's downfall. And the way that he actually does this, he goes to the Oracle of Delphi, which we talked about before, and it seems that he actually bribes them to have Demaritus declared a bastard. So religion was absolutely massive for the Spartans and mm -hmm. you know, they, took this, they took this very seriously. Demaritus ends up in going into exile because you know, all his, his honors lost and there's nowhere else he can go. And he finds refuge at, uh, you, know, you guessed it, the court of Xerxes. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. Whether or not he had sided with Xerxes before this, this certainly pushed him into his camp, right? And as I said, he goes on to be a very, very key figure in our story. He is kind of like the the Spartan guide for Xerxes. He's the one that tells them about how they do things and how how it all works in their culture. Yeah, yeah. But unfortunately for Cleomenes, after Demaritus was off the stage, uh, evidence kind of comes to light about this bribery of, of the mm -hmm. bribing of the oracles. So he almost goes down with him not, not too long after. So 
there's a few little whispers that I've read that kind of finger Leonidas as the one that pointed out this bribery, but I don't. I think that's just conjecture at this point. I don't think anyone actually speculated, but he certainly had the most to gain, right? Mm. He had the most to gain in terms of being the next one to obtain the Agia throne. Mm. You're right. There's a lot of um, suspicions, but nothing has ever been definitively presented as far as whether he was actively involved with getting Cleomenes subsequently removed. But in any event, this spelled the end for Cleomenes. Effectively, his, his honor was lost and his, his career is over, right? So um, he's placed under house arrest and he Cleomenes always seems to have been a bit touched in the head. I think he was kind of a bit of a, a bit loose um, and this really seems to have just sent him off the edge. So He's got a couple of helots guarding him. This is according to Herodotus. And he convinces one of them to give him a sword. And he kills himself by slicing himself into pieces, starting at the shins and working his way up. I mean, that has got to be a rough way to go. Not just, you know, cutting your wrists or something, but slicing all your skin off from legs up. What do you think was the catalyst for that? What could cause someone to end their life like that? By that time, he'd already been so dishonored by his people that Mm. what's the option? Either you go in exile, which is one way of it, but the other way is by essentially committing suicide in such a unbelievably brutal way. Yeah. It's, It's almost like it's so memorable. It's something to remember him by in a way, isn't it? He can't really follow Demaratus into Xerxes' court, isn't it? Can't he? So he's got this, this option or the other one. And in a way it does speak of, you know, quite a bit about the type of person he was. It was, you know, before this, he was quite a good king, wasn't he? He was very, very good. He was extremely competent. He, you're right. Like he was a bit of a loose cannon, though. So different mm. from the Spartan kings before him, mm. and was a, a huge driver of Sparta becoming so much more active in the broader world. Maybe that was something. Just the overall uncomfortable nature of that change in course mm. certainly was something that added to him being such a differently viewed king and perhaps to his contemporaries, that uh, notion of a loose cannon that Mm. by then, once he got rid of Demaratus, once he had him exiled, the overseers, all the Spartan elders had enough of it already. Mm. And Mm. that could be one of the reasons, maybe it wasn't Leonidas, but or perhaps a combination of the two that led to his ultimate removal and then thus his suicide. Even speculating on what all these people have obviously gone through in this society, even just growing up, even if nothing had gone wrong, it's a rough enough time just living. I mean, who knows? Probably had some PTSD or something there. (laughs) Yeah. But with that, uh, the Spartans have a new king, Cleomenes' 50-year-old younger brother, the one and only Leonidas, is on the throne. Now, Leonidas, he ascended to the Agiad throne at quite the interesting point because Although things were relatively stable in Sparta, also secure in their position of authority in the Peloponnese at the head of the Peloponnesian League, this was, to use your words again, Elliot, a time of looming threat and uncertainty for the whole Mm. of Greece. Because the rise of the Achaemenid Persian Empire was at hand, with their armies having just crossed over the Hellespont, today the Dardanelles Strait initiating the first Persian invasion of Greece as a part of this wider conflict that would go down in history as the Greco-Persian Wars. 
The Achaemenid Empire was founded under Cyrus the Great, who was a remarkable military leader, who from what is today southwestern Iran rebelled against and defeated the Median Empire in 550 BC to become the first Persian king of kings, followed by an unrelenting cadence of campaigns to defeat and absorb the Ionian Greek city-states at the western edge of Anatolia, the kingdom of Lydia, and the Neo-Babylonian Empire into his domains by around 530 BC. So this was a policy of imperialism and conquest that was furthered by his successors, that by the late 490s BC under Darius I had expanded to include Egypt, much of Central Asia as their northeastern boundary, and the Indus Valley to the southeast. The Achaemenid Empire thus firmly situated as the largest empire the world had ever seen to that point in time spanning an enormous area of some 5 million square kilometers. And this is an empire that's characterized by its centralized rule over regional sub-leaders in territories called satrapies. Mm. The Achaemenid Empire thereby made up of a vast multicultural population, possessing impressively deep pockets in terms of military resources and numbers. Seemingly unstoppable, and their appetite for conquest not satiated in the least when Darius crossed over the Hellespont in 492, from Anatolia into Thrace. In this dual-pronged land-sea invasion, he had an army of nearly 30,000 supported by about 600 warships or Mm. triremes. And these were skirting the Aegean coastline, traveling towards mainland Greece. I guess the question is, what was the catalyst for this epic collision? Now, a lot of this stemmed from Cyrus the Great's conquest of the Ionian Greek city-states, those located along the western coastline of Anatolia, also referred to as Asia Minor. And this conquest was achieved by Cyrus by the mid-540s BC. What this did, however, was hugely unsettle and sparked a great deal of concern among the wider Greek world, notably from Sparta and Athens but for different reasons. From Sparta, because as mentioned earlier, tyrannical power or individual rule, which Cyrus as the king of kings of the Achaemenids personified, arguably more than anyone else on earth as the most powerful ruler of the most powerful state, the threat of fellow Greeks getting swallowed up by this so assaulted the Spartan senses that In the lead-up to Cyrus's campaigns among the Ionians, the Spartans, around 547 BC, sent an envoy to Cyrus, conveying a simple message, that he should leave the cities of the Ionians alone, otherwise be prepared to face the wrath of the Spartans. Granted, this message, it did very little to rattle the king of kings, Mm. aside from eliciting uh, amusement (laughs) and some curiosity. So then he proceeded to call over an Ionian attendant to ask, who are these Spartans? Before proceeding to crush the Ionian cities as originally intended. And the Spartan threats in this instance, not really amounting to much beyond words, since they didn't want to become embroiled in a conflict so far away from home. Instead, it being more so the Athenians that would draw Persia's irritation, 
causing the Achaemenids to narrow their gaze not only on them, but all of Greece. Mm. And this is when in 499 BC, the Ionian Greeks revolted from the Achaemenid Empire under Darius I. And the Athenians supporting the rebel cause with troop contributions. Much of the rationale behind this intervention attributed to the fact that Athens was the mother city of many of these Ionian cities. And so while this resulted in massive headaches for the Persians, the revolt was later decisively squashed by Darius's forces by 493. But in the following year, in 492, Darius launching the first invasion of Greece at the head of that 30,000 land troop and 600 warship army. And he first conquered Thrace and the kingdom of Macedon en route to northern mainland Greece. And Elliot, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to paint this picture a little more when uh, you have this in 491 BC, this Persian assault, it's preceded by embassies that Darius sent to travel throughout the city-states of Greece, mm. demanding those tokens of earth and water, those traditional symbols of surrender. And then we get to this infamous story hmm. related to us by Herodotus, when in Sparta, upon receiving Darius's envoys demanding earth and water in a show of submission, the Spartans, in response, threw the Persian emissaries down a well, reportedly saying, dig it out for yourselves. <laughs> And maybe they yelled, this is Sparta, as it went down. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting here is that the Athenians too, they killed the Persian emissaries that were sent to them. This, among many other things, resulting in Darius ordering his army southwards into Greece, aiming to first lay waste to the city of Athens before presumably turning to Sparta. The thing about it was... It wasn't too bad of a deal being subjugated to Persia. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. You got to keep your religions. Your army stayed the way it was. Your government stayed the way it was. All that really happened was you paid some taxes and your army was sent Xerxes' campaign. So you can see why a lot of these states are going, well, we can fight them or we can just put this little overhead of Persian tax on our, on our economy. I would agree with you because one of the lesser known features of this first Persian invasion was how many city-states in Greece were sitting on the fence. They were yeah. not joining into this coalition, right? The first one would culminate in 490 BC. And there was a Greek coalition army present. It was Athenian-led, but there were many, many states that weren't involved because mm. they were, you know, trying to see which way the wind mm, was blowing. Mm. Right? Whether Xerxes is going to be the one who emerges victorious, better perhaps to not get on his bad side by participating in if the Greeks are going to get crushed and we're going to end up being ruled anyway by mm. the Persians. Right, So that was, I think, part of the consideration. But then when we draw it back to what was happening in 490 BC, this is when the first collision active collision between two armies would take place at a place called Marathon, the Battle of Marathon, 30 kilometers northeast of Athens. While this was a Greek coalition army, among all the other states that were not participating, it was also absent of Spartan soldiers. Mm -hmm. Part of this is like, okay, why were the Spartans not participating in the Battle of Marathon? The interesting thing is here, it wasn't because they didn't see the Persian threat for what it was. 
a potential calamity in the making that was coming for them as well. But their decline to participate was primarily for religious reasons, because that call to war, the Battle of Marathon, it conflicted with the timing of their religious festival, the Carnea, that, as mentioned earlier, was a sacrosanct period of peace, with the Spartans unwilling to offend the gods by putting the matters of mere mortals before the divine mm. ones. But what's astounding here is that even without Spartan aid, the Athenian-led army managed to pull off an incredible victory over the Persians at Marathon. Granted, the invasion force was, what, about 30,000? Mm. That was the land forces they brought with them. So large, but as we'll find out a little bit later, much smaller yeah. than what the, was going to come for them next, right? The, the sequel's a lot better. You said it. And so the Athenians still managed to pull off this incredible victory over the Persians, and they, they defeated them there at Marathon and pushed the Achaemenids out of mainland Greece, back up north, but with the Achaemenids still sitting at their doorstep, retaining control of Thrace and Macedon mm. as the newest additions to their mammoth empire. And despite those successes, Darius left infuriated at the outcome. So upon returning to Persia, this is uh, probably around 489, 490, towards late 490, 489, he immediately began raising a new army to make another attempt at Greece, but was then forced to put that on hold when Egypt revolted in 486, pulling his attention there instead. Mm. But then disaster, because Darius, he succumbed to illness and died while on that march. And this is the point that the Achaemenid throne passed over to his son, Xerxes I. And... Xerxes was a more than competent successor mm. and warrior king in his own right, who didn't miss a beat. He picked up things exactly where his father had left it all off, crushing the Egyptian revolt and another that arose in Babylon. And with internal affairs all settled, towards the late 480s BC, Xerxes began making preparations to exact revenge on Greece for the failed first Persian invasion, amassing an army far, far greater in strength and number than what his father had earlier assembled. The stage was set for one of the most famous battles of all time. And that is where we're going to pause things for today. Spartans and Athens have just kicked an enormous hornet's nest. The Persians were coming, and shoulder to shoulder, Shields raised and spears sharpened, the Spartans were waiting for them. We'll be back in two weeks, but while you wait, why not check out the Warlords of History podcast? You can find the show on any podcasting app, just like Anthology of Heroes. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the show's fantastic patrons. If I was standing in a Greek phalanx, I'd be picking you guys to join me. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, <laughs> come to think about. Anyway, thanks to you guys. Claudia, Tom, Caleb, Malcolm, Alex, Seth, Angus, Phil, Lisa, Jim, Alan, and Luke. Thanks a lot, guys. See you on the next one. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, 
We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. 